DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, these days in Georgia, it seems like uh, often we have uh, more that uh, uh, separates us from one another. Certainly in politics, that's been true. But I'll tell you one thing that unites all of us. There is a line of storms coming across the state that extends from the northern uh, border with Tennessee all the way down through Atlanta, Macon, Albany, and all the way across the state. And it's just going to get more and more intense, it appears, as the day goes by. So I hope you'll pay attention to weather forecasts uh, and that you'll all be uh, safe and sound uh, as as we get some stormy weather today. Um, We have so much to talk about on this Friday. It's been a consequential week in national and state politics, so let's get right to it. Jim Galloway is my partner on the Friday show. You know Jim as the former political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and longtime uh, analyst of Georgia politics, Jim. How are you today? I'm I'm uh, I'm doing very very well. I'm just kind of looking at a dark sky and 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 hoping I can stay online here. You'll you'll be fine. We're going to make sure nothing happens to your connection to us. Uh, we're also joined uh, by Chuck Williams, uh, reporter for WRBL TV in Columbus, a longtime print reporter. Uh, down there, made the switch to television in an interesting way at a point in his career when most people just kind of finish out what they're doing. He's had a long and illustrious career covering uh, politics and other news down there. Chuck, how long have you been at WRBL doing TV now? Three and a half years, and I have a new favorite term. Today, we're right in the middle yes. of it. Weather, weather aware. We are, we are weather aware at WRBL today. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you, Chuck. Amy Steigerwald is back with us, a political science professor and associate chair of the political science department at Georgia State. Amy, for today's show, since since these um, uh, this the abortion ruling uh, or or the draft opinion uh, became such a huge story on Monday, and we'll talk about the consequences of it in politics today. We should also point out that you've written and researched extensively on the federal courts. And you, you actually uh, authored a book, and I'm not sure how many years ago it was, it's Judging Law and Policy, Courts and Policymaking in the American Political System, in which you raise questions about the extent to which courts do make social and public policy changes and have influence on public policy. So I'm really happy you're with us today. Well, thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. My son challenged me to say smart things, so we'll see if I can follow through. Okay, I think you might succeed. And Rafael Olivaria is with us. He's a reporter for Univision, um, focusing mainly now on politics and immigration. Uh, Rafael, this is the time to uh, be moving your beat as close to politics as you can. Thanks for being here. I'm happy to be here, Bill. Happy to be with you guys. And yes, when I first began with uh, Univision, I had little to no idea how important Georgia was going to be- become. So yeah, this is the moment right now. You're a native of Venezuela, right? I am. I've been in Georgia for about eight years. And, you know, it's been in- interesting having, you know, my experience from back in Venezuela and now see the political developments here. So it's been a really interesting idea, um, moment and experience to see all of this. Well, we're happy that you could be with us today. I do want to start, we, I want to get into the abortion discussion <clears throat> in just a minute, because it's important, obviously. But Jim, l- let's take a look very quickly at the first week of early voting, which started, of course, on Monday. Um, and uh, it, it, it's been fascinating to watch. We now have uh, four days of, of totals on early voting. And so far, 130, basically 132,000 people have voted. If you compare that to the same time four years ago, um, the number was only 42,000. 
216% higher this year than uh, four years ago. There's a huge appetite, apparently, for people to get out and vote. We'll see if it continues throughout the early voting period, of course. Right, and this is without the uh, th- this is without the the abundance of drop boxes and such uh, that were that were there in the in the last cycle. I I do believe in I'm uh, you know looking at the website, this is it, it appears that we're we're headed back toward the more traditional uh, 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 population of absentee balloters uh, because you have uh, I, I think uh, down sixty two percent are above the age of 65 and older. Uh, that includes me and my wife, by the way. We cast ours a couple days ago. But that's, it, it's, it's, and it's, it's, it's uh, uh, overwhelmingly white and Republican uh, 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 ballots that are being cast right now. And, and that, that goes to the point that, you know, that we, the Democrats really, their, 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 their top issue, the gubernatorial race, has pretty much all, has already been settled with Stacey Abrams. Yeah, um, Chuck, right now, uh, 58% of the early voters are Republican, 42% are Democrats. But it, but as uh, Jim points out, Chuck, uh, you've got two contested races at the top of that Republican ballot. Uh, you've got the Senate race, um, Herschel Walker, way out front there. But probably more importantly, the Purdue-Kemp gubernatorial contest, Chuck. Here's my question, and it's speculative, of course. Uh, if you're a down-ballot Democrat— running in a contest for attorney general like a Jen Jordan, uh, secretary of state, um, uh, like a B. Wynn and others. uh, 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 What kind of impact could it have on your ability to turn out voters if the top of the ballot is not attracting much attention? A lot of impact. And I think you're starting to see that and see it in a real way. And, you know, Muskogee County is a traditionally Democratic county. If you look right now, talk to our director of elections, the votes are coming from other parts of Georgia. Our vote totals are down right now, but it's three to one Democratic ballots over Republican 27, 2800 voted in the first four days of early voting. But, you know, if you are in that secretary of state state's race or you're in that AG's race or you're in that lieutenant governor's race that's contested, you know, you've got to be wondering a little bit sort of what this looks like, because I'll even go a step further, Bill. How does it impact mayor's races in places like Columbus? Because you let's go further down that ballot. We've got mayor, city council, and school board races going on down here. So I'm trying to kind of figure or understand all that from my reporting, and I think I think time will tell. Time will tell, but We've got to watch it very closely over the next two weeks, and then obviously on the 24th. Raphael, when you look at the uh, Hispanic community at this stage uh, in the early voting, what, uh, anecdotally, what kind of uh, interest do you see in people getting out to the polls? You know, usually what I've seen is uh, mostly uh, – Latino activists trying to incentivize pe- people to get, get get out to the vote, and I, you know, and you know, according to what I've seen, that the numbers you've seen is about 0.9 percent of the Hispanic population yeah. who's already voted, um, and I believe, and, and there's been huge effort by uh, many uh, Hispanic groups to let the Hispanic voters first to try to. Sign up more Hispanics to, to, so they would be able to to vote because there are so many that are unregistered un, un yet that are citizens. But at the same time, is you know to let them know how important the vote is. And I've seen them even with the last mayor race, how they were out there trying to get out the vote. So uh, so I believe that's, that's the effort that probably it's ongoing right now. But as uh, Chuck was, was, was mentioning, many of these groups that are trying to get out the Hispanic vote, most of the time they are more connected to uh, the Democratic Party or the Democratic candidates. And, and usually I, you don't see those groups really aligning with the Republican primary. So I expect that probably the numbers that we're seeing right now when it comes to a general election might 
be higher than it is right now, but uh, but yes, certainly it's not the you know number as high as as many of these activists would like to be because they want the Hispanic community to be heard, to be included in those debates, and yeah. sometimes they don't participate that much. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that um, it's been a little tr- harder to really, really build momentum to get Hispanic voters out to the polls um, here in Georgia particularly, and that's an ongoing uh, effort. Amy, what do you make of the early voting numbers? They match up to what we've seen in the past. I mean, I think one of the things that people have to remember is that we're right now talking not about the general election, but the primary election. So primary elections turn out your base. They turn out the people who are attached to a particular party. You are right. And and within Georgia, what is sort of distinct is that you have to request which ballot you want. But you still right, are not going to have sort of your independent because partly they're being forced to choose. Do they want to vote in the Republican primary? Do they want to vote? in the Democratic primary. And so you're much more likely to see those who, number one, voting is a habit for them as opposed to an afterthought, Uh, those who are much more invested in the races and also much more invested in what's going on in their party. And so it's a very different population than votes in the general election. And I think we in part see that by where these breakdowns are coming in. So it is much more likely to be older. It's much more likely to be white. It's much more likely to be affluent. Um, and that's what we're going to see in the primaries as opposed to in the general election. Yeah, uh, Bill, one thing I, I, I am saying, I, and I don't have any statistics. For, this is just uh, a, a, an anecdotal uh, kind of sampling. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of independents and Democrats telling me that – well, telling me, telling the world that, that they're picking up a Republican ballot – uh, specifically, uh, because the, there, 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 there are, are tighter races there, but also specifically because of Brad Raffensperger, mm-hmm. they they want to vote in that Secretary of State's race to uh, again uh, uh, to support Raffensperger, who they think did the right thing uh, last December in, in rebuffing uh, Donald Trump's uh, 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 request to to recount the vote to to, to find his eleven thousand votes. And against Jody Heiss, who Trump has 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 endorsed. Chuck, you know, Bill, what Jim just said, I'm hearing the same thing down here. Five times yesterday, I had people I would consider traditional Democrats tell me they were voting Republican. I'm like, what for? They said we're voting for Raffensperger. And you know, I find it fascinating on this level. Usually when a Democrat pulls a Republican ballot or vice versa, they're trying to set up the weakest candidate for their person in the general. This is where they're saying this guy did the right thing and he needs to be rewarded with my ballot and to the extent I'm not going to vote in the Calvin Smiley house race or whatever. It's, It's interesting. They're going in that direction and it's a reward for what they consider somebody that did the right thing. And, you know, it's really interesting. And I'm not sure the Republicans fully understand the the size of that little bitty ripple wave that's coming out. Um, you know what's interesting about all this, Amy, uh, before we move on, is that typically when the people of one party say say they're going to cross over and vote in the other party, it's as Chuck says, they say they're going to do it to pick the weaker candidate in the other party for the general election. That typically, I think the studies show, they don't really do that. They say they're going to, but then they don't. But what's interesting about this is that you're talking about this positive a decision to to reward a, a candidate, and maybe that's something that really will happen in a way that the negative votes usually don't develop. No, I think that's very true, and I mean, I've, I, I've heard this, similar things from people because I think that there is sort of a recognition that um, statewide Republican candidates are more likely to win. And so we'll have to see what happens in this election. But also the fact that there is a real concern about, um, you know, from those who are supporting Raffensperger about the idea of Jody Heiss being uh, the secretary of state candidate and the implications of that. Now, the flip side is I've also heard some people suggesting that they're voting for Raffensperger, but that they're also on that ballot, perhaps, 
voting, for example, for Purdue because they want to try to force the runoff and in that sense make it more difficult because they, of course, get to once you pick that ballot, that's the only ballot you get to pick that you get to vote on. Right. We don't have the ability to sort of pick and choose between the various races. But how many people are actually doing that and following through on it? Uh, is going to be an interesting question, and it'll be interesting to see sort of where that turns out. And I think the other question is, right, we're again getting this question that we've been discussing for a very long time of how much impact are Trump's endorsements in these races going to have once all of the votes are in and counted? All right. Um, We will certainly keep track of early voting in the next couple of weeks and talk about how we're seeing it all shape up. But, Jim, let's move into this whole issue of the Alito leak um, and the extraordinary impact it has had on our political, cultural, social landscape already, even though we know that there could be changes, certainly in the draft of the opinion, in the language. And for all we know, there could be some votes that that change before it's finalized. That doesn't seem likely uh, in terms of voting on it. But, you know, we we have to always make that clear. Okay, so with all that in mind, um, we now know that uh, Chuck Schumer is going to call for a vote next week on a measure that would uh, uh, enshrine uh, the right to choice in federal law. We know that he has no chance of passing this. Uh, because he needs a supermajority to do it. No Republican will support it. Uh, For that matter, you've got a Democrat like Joe Manchin who is uh, pro-life and won't support it. Um, But it's an important symbolic move. Raphael Warnock, in what's expected to be a hotly contested re-election campaign, has already said not only would he vote for a federal uh, law protecting the right to choice, but... He would vote to overturn the filibuster so that it could be done on the basis of a of simple majority. Right, right. The, the the vote, the Senate vote is is scheduled for Wednesday, uh, and, and it's uh, unlikely to clear even a simple majority. Uh, I mean, the, this morning, Susan Collins said she's she's not going to be voting for it. Uh, Joe Manchin said that yesterday. So, so I, I I don't know that it can it can can reach the 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 fifty percent uh, threshold that would bring uh, Vice President Kamala Harris in, into the into into the uh, the mix here. Uh, this is, you know, this it's it's we're in very very uncharted territory here. I th- I think I, I think uh, this is not nineteen seventy two. You have you have. Uh, a, a, a sector of the population, and I'm speaking specifically of women, who are far more mobilized, who are far more active, who have who have uh, who have networks that are financially supported. Uh, 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 Abrams, move, Stacey Abrams, moved to to discontinue her campaign funding funding and 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 uh, shift all that fundraising uh, toward uh, uh, pro-abortion groups, uh, pro-choice groups. I think that's that's indicative of it. I think, and and I think you're going to see uh, Republicans have to wrestle with this as well on on two fronts. Uh, number one, uh, e- e- even though this is something they have pursued since oh since since uh, since the uh, the the, the mid '80s. Uh, number one is, of course, the consequences. Uh, I think David Perdue was was uh, quoted this uh, this week as saying that he wants to make Georgia the safest place for the unborn. Well, if you if you have if you're banning abortion, then I think the the question shifts to okay, what are you doing for those who are born, not not the unborn, and and that's going to put some some weight on Republicans as far as as maternal care co- uh, goes, as far as child care goes. Then I think you have then you have the question of enforcement. How do you police this? If you're going to criminalize abortion, how do you police it? And who is if every crime needs a criminal, you know? Who's the criminal? Is it the mother? Is it the doctor? Is it the the, the anesthetist? Uh, those are all questions that haven't been answered. Um, well, in fact, the state of Louisiana yesterday passed out of committee a bill that would classify abortion as homicide 
and, and make it possible for prosecutors to bring criminal cases against women who end a pregnancy. Now, we don't know if it'll pass a whole legislature uh, and with, whether it'll be signed into law, but they're moving in that direction. Raphael, what's interesting about uh, abortion rising to the front as a, the major issue in this election cycle is it fits into where Stacey Abrams was already headed. I mean, Abrams has made it clear that she is going to be laser focused on access to health care, on equality in health care, uh, Medicaid expansion and the like uh, for Georgians. Uh, that's her big issue. And so to add to that now, to be able to say the right to choice is a crucial part of that really plays right into her strong her strong suit. And it's interesting, Bill, how this is starting to shape as a one issue election, right? So you wouldn't have in all of these pr- proposals because I'm fighting for this, this and that, and, and but then you will have a one issue election. And I believe it's going to be interesting the impact that we might see on la- Latino voters. You know, uh, the Democrats sometimes have, uh, they try to reach out to Latino voters, but sometimes the way that they're reaching out has, a little, has backfired a little, little bit. Sometimes they are being, they've been focused on immigration issues and stuff like that, but they have to recognize that the Latino community, also here in Georgia, there's a huge amount of it that is very conservative. And the, the polls that I've seen, uh, the, yes, the majority of the Latino voters approve maintaining Roe versus Wade, but the, the rate is basically the same as the white com- community. And religion plays a huge role in those conservative Latino communities. And it's going to be interesting because it might turn out the vote if it becomes a one-issue election. But at the same time, we may see some Latinos getting reached out by the Republican Party and, and telling them that, you know, like, like many, many did, like even if you don't like some of the things that we, we've done to the, to the community or how we talked about immigration issues and stuff like that, we, we are, quote unquote, pro-life. And that's probably going to turn them uh, to go and get the vote out probably for Republicans. So it's going to be interesting how the voters will react to this campaign shaping as a one issue now. Yeah, yeah, Raphael, I haven't seen the most recent polling on abortion by uh, race and ethnicity, but I have seen studies over the polling over the last few years. And the one thing that I have noticed, uh, and it's not surprising, is that uh, Catholic Hispanics tend to be opposed to abortion. I would think are much more likely to be animated to turn out to vote for a candidate who opposes abortion, uh, given their religious beliefs. Yes. Yes, and that's that. That's why it's going to make things a little interesting when it comes to to that, because that's one of the issues, like issues that trigger the Hispanic population, has been used by by Republicans, like when the Cuban protest started. Like that, that's one of the things that Republicans took advantage of to tell them, hey, the the Democrats are pro Castro regime, and so we are the ones who are here fighting communism and stuff like that. So we're probably going to see that strategy moving forward. And like you said, the the, uh, religion plays such a huge and important role uh, with so many of the Hispanic community here. Amy, it's not surprising that while Democrats like a Raphael Warnock, like a Stacey Abrams, other Democrats on the ballot are uh, all expressing their uh, uh, passionate concerns about choice being overturned, Republicans are ducking the issue a bit by choosing to focus on how outrageous the leak was. Now, the, the leak was extraordinary and worthy of condemnation. It just seems to have been a terrible, terrible kind of blow to the integrity of the court. Nevertheless, it's a good way for Republicans to not have to deal with the issue, which is one of the reasons Schumer wants to force a vote next week. No, it's very true. One of the things that is most interesting about the sort of bills that have been put in place, and it's true about sort of the Georgia bill that, of course, is right now um, blocked in the federal courts, is that we've seen a lot of sort of restrictive legislation passed in the states, many times with minority support from the public. So it may have passed, right, the one in Georgia passed by a single vote, 
Uh, but in fact, a majority of the population, when asked about the provisions of the bill, are not in support of it. And so there's this disconnect between what it is that the public actually wants to have happen and what a lot of these bills, if this draft decision was to become law, would do. And that becomes sort of the thing that I think for a lot of Republicans that they don't actually want to discuss, right? They don't want to have to answer the questions like Jim had brought up of what happens to, right, the, the child who is raped and ends up being pregnant. They don't want to answer the question of, more importantly, what happens to the woman who miscarries, goes to the hospital because she's having complications, and now gets questioned about what she did. Is she now liable, even if she wanted right, to be pregnant, but 40% of all pregnancies end in a miscarriage, right? And also, they don't want to answer the question of what happens to, again, the many, many women, unfortunately, especially in the state of Georgia, who run into complications while they are pregnant. Uh, maternal health, unfortunately, in this country, and particularly in Georgia, is not safe. Women die, right? They want to be pregnant. They run into complications. And under right, these provisions right now, a lot of these laws, the way that they are written, would say that even if we know that there is an issue and there is something that could be done um, to aid the woman, that nothing can be done, right? Some laws say there's no exceptions to the health and life of the mothers. Other ones say that those uh, exceptions only kick in if, in fact, the woman is basically about to die. So we're not allowed to take preventive health care measures to save the person who is pregnant until it is that she's about to die. She has to get sick. And that's actually the same issue that led to um, there to be an expansion, right, and an overturning of laws against abortion in Ireland, is that there was a 30-year-old woman who developed complications while pregnant, went to the hospital, they knew what the issues were, and they were prevented from being able to take action until she became incredibly sick and she ended up dying. And so this is what we're sort of forcing, what, what I think is coming into play, and that I think is also going to play a huge impact on voters who up until now this has been simply an abstract conversation of something yeah. that could happen. Chuck and then Jim. Well, I want to go back to the leak, you know, and I think the word you used, Bill, was egregious. I kind of look at the leak as probably some of the most important reporting I've seen in my lifetime. I mean, that wow. leak that leak resulted from reporting. And, you know, maybe somebody had a source that at Politico that trusted them enough to put literally something that will get them disbarred if they are an attorney in that person's hands. I mean – and I may be wrong looking at it, but that when I saw it, my first thought was, how did the reporter get here? That That's just an amazing place for a reporter to be, where who the Politico people that broke this. That's just my thought on it. No, I think, Jim, and you weigh in in any way you want on this, but I think to the extent that this is journalism at its best, you, you may condemn the leak, but once Politico had the draft, uh, you have to give them credit for saying we know it's legitimate, we know it's authentic, we know it will cause one of the biggest controversies the country has seen in years. But it's news, right? And and uh, and uh, I, I will say a case can be made for uh, for for uh, for for the leaker being of any ideological. Uh, ilk, uh, I can right. I can make the argument uh, that that it benefits uh, the conservative wing, the the dominant conservative wing of the court, and and the uh, and and the and the liberal side. Just, uh, but I wanted to get back to something that that, that Amy was saying, and 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 just to, to emphasize it, so much of this uh, anti-abortion legislation in Georgia and in other states has been has been kind of showboating to the to the to the GOP base. And it's mm -hmm. and 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 the, these measures have been passed with the understanding that a federal judge would step in and halt enforcement, and suddenly that is no longer the case, and and Republicans are going to have to actually govern on this issue, and that means it's the, the, the these measures are going to have to uh, you, you're going to have to take a look at what they've put on the books, and and to see what. Uh, what's what's what needs to be adjusted 
uh, in the days in, in the days to come. Uh, all right, Jim Galloway, you get the last word in the first segment of the show. I want to keep talking about this issue and all of the ripple effects, the waves that have uh, uh, just flowed uh, flowed out of the leak, and we'll do that uh, after these messages. Amy Steigerwald, Chuck Williams, uh, Rafael Olivaria, and Jim Galloway continue with me now on Political uh, Rewind. Uh, Chuck, one of the things that people are talking about now uh, is looking at uh, the fact that states across the country are going to be a patchwork of pro and anti-choice states, um, it is lo- it's assuming this uh, opinion uh, becomes final. And, and it looks like we're going to see wars between states. And what's interesting about this is the last time we've had anything that comes close to the potential for this conflict were the fugitive slave laws in which states were uh, adamantly uh, fighting against one another in what to do about slaves that escaped from their plantations. But it could turn this country even more divided in in really, really troubling ways. You know, you're right. And if you watch the 2020 election, the aftermath of it, you were like, this country can't get more divided. There's no way. And then it's like, you know, watch this. And I saw a map of potential states and where they would go. And Georgia is right in the heart of a swath that is pretty much not going to allow abortions. I mean, there it may change a little bit, but if you look, it runs Oklahoma down into Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, you know, up in the Carolinas, Florida, Florida even right now. So, I mean, it's fascinating to look. I mean, we're, you know, somebody in Georgia's, if they if they want to have an abortion, they're probably going to have to get on a plane. I mean, pretty much they're going to have to get on a plane and go to a city, you know, a two-hour flight away. And, I mean, that's just, you know, the thing about it, when you take somebody like me, I mean, a lot of older folks are oblivious to the abortion issue because we don't know who's had the abortions because the women who've had them don't talk about it. As you start seeing more women talk about their experiences, and even women that are my age, I'm 60, one, I mean, you're going to see more women come out and say, I did this when I was in my 20s. And it's going to cause us to have to sit up and look at this differently in much the same way that the the gay rights bill the gay rights thought process changed when it impacted more people's families. I think we're moving in that direction. Raphael? I believe what Todd is saying is very important and I wanted to share with you something that we thought about at Univision when we were covering the story. I had the opportunity because she wanted to a, a Latino activist, she said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to share my, my story. And my, my story of the day was basically if, instead of having like the Planned Parenthood spokesperson and uh, then the Georgia Rights Life spokesperson. So I focused it on her and, and, and she told the story how uh, she had an abortion when she was 19 years old. She talked about how she believes now that it was the right choice for, for her, how she wasn't ready then, how that turned into job opportunities for her that she wanted, how she was able to feel u- useful and, and, and she didn't want it right now. So she, she and how important it was for her having a, a her, her family to love her and, and accept it when, when she told them that she was about to do it. So she talked about how she wanted other women to have that same right and I think it was interesting, you know, exposing that to the um, to the Hispanic community, because as Chuck is saying, it's so important to have their voices heard, because more than, 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 than politics, it's about them, the women, and how their lives would change if, as, as you were talking about, it's completely banned uh, in Georgia, because Georgia right to life, they're, they're saying, you know, the, the the heartbeat uh, law is not is, is not enough. I mean, if, if Roe gets overturned, then we will lobby and try to ban it like straight away, like no exception. So it's important to have their voices heard because their life would completely change. Like uh, you were talking about, if if they would have to 
take a plane to try to travel somewhere and try to get an abortion in a different state because for many, you know, especially low-income communities, that's not, you know, a a, a very uh, practical option. Um, by the way, uh, the most chilling cartoon that I think Mike Lukovich has done in a very long time appears in the AJC today. If you get the paper, you ought to look at it. The caption of it, it shows a woman sitting at a desk with a man in a white coat, but the caption is, abortion, a decision between a woman and her travel agent. It was chilling to me to see that uh, cartoon from Lukovic. Um, Amy, I want to take up one more aspect of this before we move on to other subjects, and that's, you know, I've said on this show before, I don't think there is a more brilliant analyst of the Supreme Court than Linda Greenhouse, uh, who, of course, was on staff for the New York Times, now writes a biweekly column on the court for the Times. And she published one today that I've put up on my personal uh, Twitter, uh, which is at Nygut B, if you want to read it. But she says something that I never really either realized or thought about. She says that, um, that people think that Roe is some kind of, is her language, some kind of feminist screed about the right to abortion. But Roe was really a decision about the right of doctors to exercise their judgment about a patient's best interest without risking prosecution or and prison. So while she's in some ways being critical of the fact that neither Roe nor the Alito uh, uh, opinion really talk about women in a particularly important way, Alito not at all, is she's also making an important point about how this is an F that, that overturning Roe now would uh, interfere with a doctor's ability to do what's best for his patient. That's a whole different way of looking at it. Yes, and it's true on both ways, right? So one of the things that was sort of striking about Alito's opinion is that there is, in fact, no discussion, right, of the woman. She is not sort of within it. It is framed sort of really as this right to abortion, as opposed to, for example, the way that O'Connor discusses it in KCV Planned Parenthood, about being about the right of the woman to decide whether she wants to bear or begat a child and putting it more in that. One of the things that people don't realize, right, we've got to put Roe in context. It's 1973. We've got two things going on. Number one, we have the American Medical Association reasserting control over what doctors can do and wanting to ensure that they're going to be protected. Second, we are in a scheme where in 1973, we haven't really had the early equal protection cases yet, right? They've only just started. The idea that there is, in fact, right, this idea of we're going to give heightened scrutiny to uh, distinctions made between the sexes and genders doesn't exist yet, right? That's only barely coming out. In 1973, in a lot of states, women weren't allowed to serve on juries. They could be prevented from doing multiple things. They were not allowed to uh, hold certain positions, right? So, they weren't, in fact, sort of viewed in that way, and I think that's part of it. By the time we get to Casey in 1992, we've really seen that shift. We're now after, right, those landmark cases that have said, wait a second, right, no, right, we're going to now recognize in law that you can't, right, women are allowed to hold these different positions. They can't be blocked from doing these things just because of their gender. And we also see a shift. That's part of what the the once we get to Casey, while it is true that there's sort of this question of what exactly is an undue burden, it places it, it now centers the woman to say what's an undue burden on her as she is trying to make these crucial decisions, and it really shifts it to be about an individual right. So I think the other thing that I do, just want the last point I want to make is that one of the things that would be important about this decision that I think is going to then also spill over into the politics, this will be the first time that the court has overruled a precedent and in doing so has taken away an individual right. That is not, in yeah, fact, what I, happened, I, right, for example, in Plessy. Well, and of course, Alito, based on everything you just said, uh, Alito rolls us back to the days of Roe when when the rights of of, of women as equals weren't so firmly established in law. Go changes in Casey, and now Alito, if that decision as written stands, takes us back to those earlier uh, days. Galloway, before we get a break, that's the one last thing I'd like to ask uh, for uh, your thoughts on. 
uh, before we do. And that's with now we see the court in the middle of the most intense political storm, perhaps. I I don't know when the last time was it was as intense as this, if ever, because the leak uh, put it out there. The question is, how much do we imagine it's possible that even if the court, you know, continues supporting outlawing Roe, the language in the opinion changes to take into account some of the concerns being expressed by uh, people. Yeah, this is going to be going to be very interesting to see how, how the American public digests the sausage making of the Supreme Court. You know, I mean, this is, uh, I mean, the 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 the, the, the Alito leak was 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 very clearly uh, uh, designated as a first draft, and 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 these decisions go through multi, multiple drafts, five, six, seven, eight, to get the language just right to satisfy uh, each one. There are internal arguments. Uh, and and of course, and I'm sure it, we, we've talked about that. You've you've talked about this in in previous days. The leak happened, kind of days days before, uh, uh, only days after, the Wall Street Journal published an opinion column in which uh, uh, which said that uh, Chief Justice John Roberts was trying to woo the most conservative judges on the bench to 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 adopt a more narrow uh, decision yes. when it came to the Mississippi case. And so, yes. so there, yes. there's a there's a possibility that he might succeed, and if that's the case, then uh, then then we'll have the before and the after snapshot of this decision. All right, um, I got to get to a break. Um, thank you for a terrific conversation of a story that we'll be following, no doubt, for weeks and weeks to come. Uh, we'll be back with more on political rewind in just a minute. On Monday on Political Rewind, we're going to take one of our semi-regular looks at spending in campaigns in Georgia so far on the latest ads, uh, what messages are being uh, uh, distributed by the campaigns out there. But just uh, very briefly, uh, the Abrams campaign uh, reported just a uh, day before yesterday that Abrams has raised $11.7 million in the three-month period between February and April. She has more than $8 million in the bank. Uh, Kemp uh, had raised 2.7 uh, in the last days since the legislative session. He's got 10.7 million on hand, so he's well funded. We don't know about Purdue's latest numbers, but we know he lags dramatically behind. All right, so we'll talk about that in much more detail on Monday's show. Um, Raphael, uh, I, you know the culture wars, uh, abortion being the biggest one right now, continue to drive much of what's happening in the election this year. And uh, the latest effort by the Georgia High School, by Republicans, was to give the Georgia High School Athletic Association the right to decide what to do about how transgendered athletes would compete in sports. And it was no surprise that GHSA voted unanimously that people, uh, kids, could not participate in uh, the gender they identify with but rather only in the gender uh, which was uh, given to them when they were uh, born. This is a huge cultural battle, but once again, I wonder if where the Latino community is on this issue being in some ways more conservative, uh, perhaps, than, than the larger population around. Yes, you will see a lot more conservatism in the Latino community, and uh, you can see it uh, very similar to the abortion issue where you have People trying to reach out to their own people in their in their in, in their, their community. So we like we had with the abortion issue. We've had also a story with uh, trans uh, Latinx community talking to their own community to try to understand how this may impact kids. And I believe there's something interesting here, Bill. And when it comes to how they apply this, because I asked the, the Georgia High School uh, Association about this. You know, they talk about the, the birth certificate, right? There are you know. In other countries, such as some states in Mexico, you can change the, the, the birth certificate. And are there are other states in the U.S. where you can change it. So it gets to a point where I was speaking with other people where if there might be an instance where you will have a birth certificate that you were able to change it and they wouldn't know they changed it. So how they would apply to it, they then, then they say they want, well, they wanted the certificate at birth. So it's going to probably, when it comes to applying all of this, probably going to get a little me messy when we come into this 
gray areas where foreign-born kids and kids being born at different states in the U.S. where they have different regulations. Chuck? You know, the Georgia High School Association acted very quickly. I mean, they took it up, and it was a vote of their executive committee bill, and that's a fairly large committee. It's 40. It's not like you would think a board of 8, 10, 12, 15 people. This is 40 I think it's like 60 people. Okay. Yeah, it's it's a large committee that is is representative throughout the state. Um, So we were looking at it last night just to see who the Columbus – Chattahoochee Valley representatives were, and you know, it, just the quick, the quickness. I, you know, I don't think the Georgia High School Association wanted this dumped in their lap, but they certainly dealt with it very quickly when it was, and you know, and that association has a, as we've discussed before on this show, has a tremendous amount of authority over public high schools in the state of Georgia, and so, you know is a lot, you know, two questions, and I don't have the answers to them. Somebody does, I'm sure. How many athletes are we talking about? How many athletes are we actually talking about? First question. The second question is, will any of those athletes, if there are any, file suit? Yeah, uh, I think we've yeah. got – oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead, Jim, and then Amy. Okay. Uh, no. No. For, no. First of all, I, I I I don't think anybody has been able to point to any example of 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 a a trans transgender student uh, 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 participating in a in an on, on an athletic team in Georgia. Uh, but I I think what the Bill I think what we have to understand is is kind of the the the, the political dynamics here. Okay. This was a fight that this was a very very bitter fight in the legislature. Uh, the the move to put it to the GHSA was a kind of a a, a, a duck and cover thing. Uh, you were trying to shift it to another uh, an, an, another entity, and and create a study committee at the same time to kind of put the put the issue in cold storage. That was that that was a a general election strategy backed by House Speaker David Ralston. Who does not want to see that issue come up and bite his members in a November general election where his people are vulnerable? But but what happened? What we saw happen with the GHSA was that was that that was a, that was a primary dynamic. I think that was something that I think that was passed to protect Brian Kemp uh, in 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 his primary against David Ross. Uh, I mean David Perdue to 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 prevent uh, to, to prevent uh, uh, David Perdue from having that that opening. I'm fascinating. Amy? No, I, I, I think that that is right. And I think one of the things that um, is also coming out of this, that I think even those who might have voted in favor of this amendment, is that it was supposed to be that there was first this study committee. Um, and in fact, the, the speaker afterwards said that he wanted it. And uh, the GPB reporting is that uh, he said he was going to tell right the Georgia High School Association that he didn't want transgender children, quote unquote, targeted that he wanted them to look at it, right, especially in concert with the mental health bill that was just passed. And so I think what is going to be interesting to see is how this plays out and also what are the implications right, of uh, doing this, especially given some new executive orders that have been passed that relate to Title IX. Uh, this would seem to be uh, in opposition to that. And so I think if there are uh, transgender children who are planning on doing it, right, they are going to um, – have a possibility to be able to challenge this under federal law. And so we should probably look for that to potentially occur. Um, so, Chuck, how, you, you know, you're in an interesting part of the state down there. Uh, so let me turn to that for a few minutes, if I can. Um, number one, you're down there with the second district. You've got this interesting race uh, shaping up in Sanford Bishop's district, which has become a little bit more Republican. So there's that uh, going on uh, right now. And just the other day, you traveled across the state line just a a little ways to go to Troy to see Joe Biden, uh, you know, you know, make a visit over there. Talk to us a little bit about what's happening down in your corner of the state right now. President Biden was in Pike County, Alabama. There is a uh, Lockheed Martin uh, missile plant. I did not know that they're making javelin missiles in rural Alabama 
It's tucked uh, off of 231, 25 miles from Montgomery, 20 miles from Troy. Um, and they're making about six out five to 6,000 Javelins a year. They also make other missiles and other weapons systems, but the Javelin is, because of its use in the Ukraine war right now, is high, is, um, is, is high profile. And that's why President Biden came down there. It was fascinating because you look at the workers, and I'm from Alabama. I understand Alabama politics a little bit enough to think I understand it. And you saw that. I saw that room, and they had about 200 of the Lockheed Martin employees in that room. And if I had to guess, there may have been 25 Biden votes in there, maybe. Well, that's um, what I thought was interesting. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It was, it was a... <laughs> You know, I mean, you know, you can't tell a book by the cover, but you got a pretty good idea of what you're reading when you look at it. And, you know, and it was, <laughs> and it was except Bluestein's book. Bluestein's book uh, um, is that way. But, you know, it's just fascinating to go in that room because President Biden came in and he was introduced by this woman named Linda Griffin, and she was 60-ish. African American woman, and she she was outstanding in her support of President Biden, and she was a perfect a perfect prop for him. Um, I I would love okay, a couple things. We are really running out of time, so a couple things, Chuck. Number one, I was really interested in hearing you make the point about Biden making that visit. I get the javelin missile is important in the country right now, but it's an interesting place for a guy whose uh, um, approval ratings are so low. He's not going to win a whole lot of votes there. Uh, we will talk about Sanford Bishop in the 2nd District at some point on the show in the weeks ahead, Chuck. We're not going to be able to get to it now because we are out of time for today's Political Rewind. So Chuck Williams of WRBL-TV, you know we always love having you on the show. Amy Steigerwald, thank you for your insights, uh, particularly about what's happening with the opinion on Roe. Uh, Jim Galloway. I love having you with us on Fridays. And Rafael Olivaria, you need to come back. We want to have you on more often. We need Univision represented on Political Rewind. So thank you, too, for being here uh, today. So that's it. We are out of time for Political Rewind. Oh, one quick note. Guess who's coming on the show Tuesday, Jim Galloway? Cynthia Tucker, the legendary oh. columnist from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, has a brand new book. We're really excited about talking with Cynthia about that. Uh, that's it for us. Thank you very much, Sam Burmes-Dawes, Jay Cook, uh, Natalie Mendenhall, Jesse Nyswanger, Sarah Callis for all the work you do to get this show up and running every single day. Thank you all for listening. Back again on Monday. In the meantime, please take care. Stay healthy. Bye, everybody.